pray. Father, that is our longing to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we know this isn't easy. There are many things that call us to do otherwise, things that vie for our attention and affection. Lord, throughout this week, we have heard from many voices, media outlets, Facebook feeds, to even what our friends are saying. But Lord, we need to hear from you that your word would pierce through the haze of our weeks, that it would show us Christ, that we may rivet our attention upon him to understand why, why we are here in this world, to live for the cause of Christ. And so use your word to nourish our souls and build us up that we may honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome as a church for the month of October. We are in the middle of our outreach month where we get to focus both on local and global missions. For this Sunday, we have the opportunity to honor and encourage uh, the Valor Christian Academy, a school we've supported for a number of years. And probably like many of you, I have a profound respect for teachers. They uh, spend so many hours on the clock, off the clock. They just pour themselves out to invest in these young lives. They have an incredibly important and yet difficult job. And my respect only increases when I consider some of the challenges that teachers face with their students today. Just to highlight one example, a recent survey found that high schoolers to young adults ranging from 13 years old to 30s, they aspire to be influencers. Influencers. Sadly, I fall out of that range, so I will no longer be pursuing my career dream. But Pastor Francis, he's still young, and so he might be on the lookout for that. But more than half of the people pulled put being influencer as their ideal occupation. That according to this survey, a career in YouTube is more desirable than being an astronaut, a doctor, or lawyer. Ironically, the second most desired career was being a teacher, so there is hope. But influencers have become the hottest career choice among the younger generations. In fact, next year, there is a university out in Ireland who will offer a Bachelor of Arts degree in influencing. I kid you not. Courses include public relations, celebrity studies, social psychology, and video editing. I'm not making this stuff up. It may sound wild to us because we can't imagine, we can't fathom what it'd be like to work eight to five posting images and vlogs. I mean, I was thinking about this. What would I feature on my channel? You know, here are four tips on how to preach a sermon or look at my cool leather Bible, it has my name on it. It's lame, right? You guys are already laughing. I would have no subscribers. My mom would unfollow me. <laughs> For many of us, being an influencer, that would be a death sentence. And yet, this is who God made us to be. 
whether we like it or not, whether we're aware or not, we all exercise a level, a degree of influence. Teachers, coaches, small group leaders, they play a pivotal role in forming the minds of those under their care. VPs and directors, they can create an environment that can make for an enjoyable work experience or a miserable one. The stay-at-home mom is shaping the heart of her children. We may not all be influencers professionally, but we are all certainly influencers positionally. And as Christians, God has called us to a particular influence. As people who have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we are to reflect and minister the gospel. That above all and in everything, we are ambassadors for Christ. The only difference is where. An engineer in the office, customer standing in the checkout line, an athlete on the baseball field, or a neighbor in your street. And if Jesus spells out the great commission in Matthew 28, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, then our passage this morning, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is our great ordination. That as believers, we have been ordained for service, appointed to use our gospel influence towards the goal of making disciples. This is what our lives are all about. Gospel ministry, gospel influence. So if you haven't already yet, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. We'll be studying verses 13 to 16. Follow along as I read our text, a very familiar passage. Matthew five, beginning verse 13. This is the word of God. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Our passage comes on the heels of the Beatitudes. Jesus starts his famous Sermon on the Mount by preaching about what characterizes his followers. The Beatitudes are the attitudes a Christian should be. You glance back in verse three, and we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, merciful, the pure, and honestly, this isn't a very impressive list, right? This doesn't sound like the resume of the powerful, the influential. In the eyes of the world, truth be told, these traits are rather pathetic. And it only gets worse in verse 11 because Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He tells us straight up, others will revile you, Christian, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you. And yet, we can rejoice and be glad why? Because our reward is great, not on earth, but in heaven. 
Because our God specializes in redeeming the broken and using the weak. Jesus continues now to show us precisely how. He transitions in our passage from our Christian character to our Christian charge, to be a gospel influence. Here's an outline for our text. I was trained in seminary for many years to come up with this one. It's brilliant. So first, you are salt, and second, you are light. That's why I get paid the big bucks here. But Christian, how are you to influence the world? First, you are salt. You are salt. In other words, don't conform, be distinct. Jesus is very assertive in verse 13. You, you are the salt of the earth. And this is emphatic. You, you alone are the salt of the earth. Jesus is not speaking to the masses per se. The king is addressing his citizens. He is calling out his people, his disciples, those who bear his name. And there is no one on the earth, Jesus says, that is salt but you, Christian. Notice the precision. Jesus doesn't say you need to become salt or strive to be salt. He says you are, which is insightful. Often we run into all sorts of legalistic problems and practices when we focus too much on the doing. Now, of course, doing is important, but there is a proper order, a sequence of events. Being precedes doing. This passage isn't about how you get saved, but a byproduct of being saved. You see that? Jesus isn't talking about being, uh, being, or Jesus is talking about being because your Christian influence and obedience can be distilled down into one simple principle. Be who you are. Be who you are. We read of commands like flee sexual immorality. Why? Because your body is a holy temple. Proclaim God's excellencies. Why? Because you are a royal priesthood. And in this verse, it's no different. Jesus is not prescribing a five-step program on how to influence others as he is describing who you are. That in Christ, beloved, this is your identity. You are salt, so live it out. Now, salt is such a common ingredient, we often take it for granted. But in the ancient Near East, it was a prized possession. There was nothing more precious than sunlight and salt. To the Greeks, salt was referred to as theon, the word for deity. Salt was regarded as divine, a gift from God. Soldiers were often paid in salt. That's where we get the saying, he's worth his salt. He's worth what he's paid. And the reason salt was so valuable was because it had a variety of usages. One commentator identified 11, 11 different uses. Obviously, flavoring, right? Today, if your food is bland, you just sprinkle some salt to make your meal tasty. But salt back then was used as a preservative. In the Roman era, there were no massive refrigerators or coolers to prevent the meat from going bad. People would salt their food to slow decay, to keep the meat fresh. Salt was also used medicinally, 
or health benefits. Wounds were treated with salt to suck out the moisture and prevent infection. It helped people heal, recover faster. So we might ask, which usage is Jesus pinpointing? In what exact way is Jesus calling Christians to be salt? Well, in every way. He's not underscoring one example, but the essence of salt. Salt's purpose is to be salty, just as the Christian's purpose is to be a Christian. You see, Jesus is not as concerned about specific use cases. Jesus is concerned with usefulness. Salt is to be used and useful, and so is the Christian and his influence. What might this look like? Will you add flavor to the earth by how you love your in-laws? How you sacrifice and forgive your grumpy spouse? How you serve the homeless? That people notice something distinct about you. You're preservative in this world, slowing its moral decay by refusing to join in and talk trash about your manager or in how you defend and advocate for the abused. You function medicinally by listening to those who are hurting, those who are suffering, and also sharing the good news, the gospel, with those who are perishing. But let's be honest, this is not easy. This causes you to stand out just like salt does in any dish. This invites rejection, ridicule, even persecution. And therefore, Jesus cautions us. He warns us from caving in, from conforming and forsaking our saltiness. Look again at verse 13. You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus brings up an impossible hypothetical to bring out the impossibility of being an unsalty Christian. He asks, what is salt if it's lost its saltiness? The idea is absurd, it's illogical, it's complete nonsense, right? Salt is not salt if it's not salty. And the Greek verb for lose its taste paints it vividly, perfectly for us. Hear it. Moreno, Moreno, from which we derive the word moronic. For salt to lose its saltiness is moronic and utter foolishness. Do you get what Jesus is saying? For a Christian to lose his Christian influence is moronic, it's foolishness. It's like fire without heat, water without wetness, Asians without coupons. <laughs> You laugh because you know. <laughs> but the idea is it's inconsistent with its very nature, right? What would you do with unsalty salt? It doesn't matter. Throw it out, let it be trampled on. Who cares, it's useless. When salt is not salty, it loses its very essence, distinction, and definition. When salt is not salty, it is a contradiction of terms. And when a Christian loses his Christ-likeness, his Christian influence, 
when a Christian loses his very essence, distinction, and definition, then he is walking contradiction. The irony is that in our fear of being trampled on by this world, our usefulness, our influence is trampled right out of us. And listen, I get how hard this is. I'm right there with you. There are costs to following Christ, to being a Christian. For the youth, following Jesus may mean you don't get a smartphone at the same age as your friends, that you don't get to play all the same video games. For adults too, it may mean you don't laugh at the same jokes, that you don't watch the same movies as your peers. Being a Christian may mean your nightlife, your Sunday mornings are very drastically different than your colleagues. And it's a struggle for me too. The temptation to conform is strong because we all want to be liked. We all want to fit in. Employees by their bosses, teachers by their students, pastors by their congregation, anyone by everyone. But friends, as Christians, we have something better, better than being liked. We are loved by God, and that frees us to love others and honor God in the classroom and the board meeting, at the restaurant, theaters, while we're hanging out, even if we're met with strange looks. Beloved, you are meant to stand out Otherwise, what are we doing here? Are we just some PG-13 version of the world? What are we reaching out and winning people to if it is not Jesus Christ? As one pastor put it, our ability to make a difference in the world depends on our willingness to be different from the world. Our ability to make a difference in the world depends on our willingness to be different from the world. Now, we might hear that and just be overwhelmed. We think big, extravagant things, the bolder, the better. And if that's where God leads you, if that's what you're capable of doing, great. You know, start a nonprofit with a unique business model, donate millions to a missions organization. Should we take huge risks for the cause of Christ? and go to the nations, to foreign countries, absolutely. But do we also need a faithful witness in the corporate setting, in the education system, in our neighborhoods? Absolutely. This is not an either or situation, but a both and. And that's why for our outreach month, I'm so glad how we feature global missions, what God is doing across seas, like in the country of Japan. And I'm so glad that we also feature local missions, what God is doing in our schools, in our city here in Torrance, California. We praise God when gospel ministry goes forth to literally change the world. But sometimes, sometimes gospel ministry looks more like changing diapers, lesson planning, being hospitable and cooking someone else a meal. The key is faithfulness. 
whatever platform you have, wherever God has placed you, we don't have to overcomplicate this. Let's be like Jesus. I imagine for the vast majority of us, our ministry, our distinction will not culminate in one epic event or decision, but in thousands, small, daily, ordinary things we can redeem and leverage for the sake of Jesus Christ. Church, examine. Is your fellowship, your family time, your money salty? Is your conduct in traffic at the gym behind your desk salty? Is your Instagram, your text messages, your conversations, is it salty? You see, it's when we're still generous in recession, when we're charitable and civil when discussing politics, when we approach dating and marriage, not as a selfish consumer, but as a servant, that we diverge from the world and reveal something different about us. Jesus knows the temptation to conform to the world. And Jesus knows there's also the temptation to hide from the world. If you're gonna be distinct as salt, you can't be at a distance, right? Salt does nothing if it's just sitting next to the plate. No, it has to be inside of it. And to communicate this lesson, Jesus jumps to another analogy. Christian, how are you to influence this world? First, you are salt. Second, you are light. You are light. In other words, don't retreat. Be engaged, get involved. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Again, Jesus hammers on identity, who you are. He zeroes in on his disciples. You are the light of the world. And light is so basic to life, its purpose hardly needs an explanation. Light enables you to see, that's what it does. Light shines brightly, that's its nature. And this theme of light can be traced throughout the scriptures. It's a metaphor for what is pure, right, and holy. Light serves to illumine and reveal the truth. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The light we have from God's word brings us out of the darkness and into the light, helps us to understand reality. It exposes us of our sin, tells us of a savior in Jesus Christ, and teaches us one purpose in following after Christ is to shine as lights in this dark world. And to make it crystal clear, Jesus doubles up on the illustrations in verse 14. He continues, a city set on the hill cannot be hidden. It's in plain sight, it's apparent. In the ancient world, they didn't have electricity or street lamps. So traveling at night was difficult. But a city, a city set on a hill was a great reference point because it was elevated and it was lit. So no matter how far you were, if there was light shining from the city hill, you can make your way back home. Christian, you are to shine as light. 
so that as re- regardless of how dark, how wicked this world gets, you are a beacon guiding people back home, back to God. An underground tunnel, a bunker, that's for retreating, that's for hiding, not a city set on a hill. And Jesus takes it a step further by showing us how ridiculous it is to shrink back from the world in verse 15. It says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. No one lights a lamp and then immediately muffles it with a covering or a blanket. That defeats the purpose, right? That's counterintuitive. A lamp brings light that all may see. You know, when I decided to propose to my wife, Barry, I set out to buy a nice engagement ring. And after consulting my friends, doing research, and shopping around at all the boutique places like Tiffany's, Cartier, and Craigslist, I finally found the right one and purchased that expensive diamond. I got on one knee and put that big, bright, shiny rock on her finger. Now, if my wife was to exclaim, wow, this is so brilliant, this is so fancy, it's a nice diamond ring, but I think I'm gonna take it off and put it in my drawer, it would be a slap to my face. My small eyes would weep big tears. I didn't drop a million dollars so that the diamond ring could sit in her nightstand. I want her to wear it, right? I want her to raise her little arm with a mighty fist so that radiant gem beams with such brilliance, everyone is on the verge of melting. Why? So that everyone sees and knows that she's mine. She's my wife. Beloved, God did not save you so that you can stay hidden in the drawer of your own comfort or safe in your little Christian bubble. God saved you to make you a light so that everyone would see the brilliance of your life and know that you are his, that you belong to God. So shine. Now, this doesn't mean being a one-man laser show, like fireworks all up in someone's face where you're causing them to go blind. Please don't do that. Just chill. Yes, we're not a lamp under a basket, but we're also not a flashlight pressing into someone's eyeballs. We're a lamp on a stand. So then how are we to go about doing this? Well, let me offer three simple suggestions. First, Know Jesus. Know Jesus. If verse 14 sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it is. Jesus adopts the same analogy for himself. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here in Matthew, Jesus is passing on the torch. Our light is sourced in his, which means We need to know him, who Jesus is, what he's about, so that we can reflect him properly. There's no way around studying the Bible. But understand this. Yes, your devos are personal. Time in the word to nourish your own souls. 
But it is not only that. Gospel meditation prepares you for gospel ministry. That your own edification is tied to your ability to evangelize. So get into the word. It may seem pretty basic, but the truth is you can't share what you don't know. Know Jesus, and then suggestion number two, share Jesus. All right, we're just taking steps. We need to preach the gospel because words are necessary. Speak the truth in love. So let me ask, church, are you engaging your unbelieving roommate or just rushing out the door so they don't have an opportunity to ask you about a question about Jesus? Are you avoiding your abrasive coworker because you find him obnoxious and rude? Or do you accept this just comes with the territory of ministering the gospel in a dark world? Are you willing to say something when the presentation, the lecture denigrates your faith? Sure, we need humility, wisdom for how and when to say something. But listen, we are not afforded the option of staying silent forever. Be careful, very careful of masking your reluctance to speak for Christ under the guise of piety or discernment. Well, I just don't know them well enough. Now is not the appropriate time. Fine, fair enough. But then take steps in the right direction. Invest in that relationship. Schedule a time to talk. If you need a template for what to say, how to speak about Christ and give the gospel, use so many resources that are available to us, like two ways to live. The point is this. You may pray for opportunities to share, but are you also pursuing them? I know I need to grow in this. Know Jesus, share Jesus. Last suggestion, show Jesus. Show Jesus. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. Verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Show, shine. This is the only imperative, the only command in our passage. Gospel ministry is most effective when it is verbal and visible. When we don't just talk about laying treasures up in heaven, but our checkbook, our receipts show it. When we don't just say we prioritize God, but our daily planners back it up. When we don't just pontificate about turning the other cheek, but we're still gracious if insulted. Church, are you bright? How bright is your budget, your calendar, your composure even when wronged? Who do you reflect? Are you a mirror for the world? Or do you image God? Jesus tells us every believer is to be a right angle Christian. And here's what I mean by that. That people are to observe your life and then take a 90 degree turn upwards. Friends, 
Can the people around you connect the dots? The aim of all your shininess is not to draw attention to yourself. The aim of all your shininess is that your classmates, your coworkers, your friends and family would examine the outcome of your life here on earth and be projected to consider heaven and the God who reigns above. And I'm thankful because many of you are doing this. Many of you are examples to me of what this looks like. You're part of the bridge ministry or you're interested in adoption and foster the city because you want others to experience the joy of being in God's family. You take time to write an email, check in on a brother or sister to bear a burden because Christ has borne yours. You sign up for Spectrum Friendship Partners and to serve in Fall Festival because you get it. You've been served much by Christ. And I and others are catapulted to praise God, to give him all the glory. Our good works give plausibility to our good news. One of the best commentaries on the Bible, one of the most eloquent sermons on behalf of the gospel that the world will ever hear is a holy, gracious, sacrificial life. You and I are writing a type of gospel, a chapter every day by how you live, and people will read what you write, whether accurate or not. What is the gospel according to you? Would others turn away from God or be drawn to him? Jesus starts here in the Sermon on the Mount because everything that follows builds on, the, on living out your identity. And if you read on in Matthew 5, Jesus will get to the nuts and bolts. He addresses how we are to be salty and shining, how we handle anger, lust, integrity, and loving our enemies. There will definitely be something distinct and engaging about you if you control your temper, if you refuse to objectify women, if you still buy lunch for the person who chewed you out. But Jesus begins at this fountainhead, at Matthew 5, 13, 16, because what you do flows out of who you are. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How will this world taste and see that the Lord is good? Salt and light. You are salt of the earth, light of the world. We're not to separate ourselves from this world or to live in secret. We are to shine before others. And really, the only time we're permitted to be dull or dim is when the race is finished, when we're dead. Let me close with two last encouragements. A word to the defeated. Word to the defeated. Perhaps you hear all of this about outreach, evangelism, and you just feel swamped. This is a daunting task. You're wondering, how will I ever accomplish this? I'm just one dude, or I'm really a shy girl. Well, good news. Look around. You're not alone in this. We're on mission together. I mean, just pause and think about your testimony your own salvation. Sure, maybe one individual was instrumental in leading you to faith, 
But my guess is that most of our stories here involve a whole slew of people, a whole cast, a godly grandma, a faithful Sunday school teacher, a guest preacher, a kind friend. Gospel ministry, beloved, is a team effort, a collaborative project. After all, our church's name is Lighthouse. And that encapsulates our values and visions so well. We are a house of lights, a community brought together by the gospel to partner together for the work of the gospel. And this is biblical. It's actually in our text. Because if you look back at both of the U's in verse 13 and 14, I left something significant out. In the original language, the U here is plural, plural. Jesus is saying, you all are salt of the earth. You all are light of the world. One grain of salt or single candlestick might not make a huge difference. But a group, a collection, collectively we are salt shaker, seasoning the earth. Collectively we are beams of light illuminating the world. Finally, a word to the disheartened a word to the disheartened. Now, whenever someone broaches uh, the topic of outreach evangelism, we can feel a tinge or a wave of guilt. We wrestle with our shortcomings, how we failed. I know I do. There's this inner monologue, right? My neighbors, well, they know I'm a Christian, but have I said enough? Have I done enough? What about the moms and dads on my kid's soccer team? and we're halfway through the season, and I still haven't mentioned my faith. It'd be awkward to bring it up now. Or how about this one? I am impatient with my atheistic dad. I'm snappy with my kids. Why would they ever listen to me, what I have to say about Jesus? And certainly there's room for improvement, for growth. But like you, I can fixate so much on how I've blown it, all my weaknesses and excuses for evangelism. You know, I'm just an introvert. I'm not eloquent. I wish I was quick-witted or knew more. But did you hear what's common in those questions, those statements? I, I, I. I've placed the center of tension on me. Of course I'm going to be discouraged if I dwell on myself. I need to dwell on God. You see, we minister the gospel not because we have it all together. No, we minister the gospel because we've been ministered by the gospel. That even when I drop the ball and mess it up really bad in my witness, God doesn't throw in the towel and give me the boot. No, he's kind. That in Christ, he still loves and forgives me for my sins, for my blunders in evangelism that he's still for me, not against me as I strive to honor and obey him, that he is stretching my faith even as I attempt to share it. When I dwell on God, his love, his faithfulness, his promises, his gospel, then my heart balloons with gratitude, with hope, with renewed passion, that he is doing a gospel work in me while he is doing a gospel work through me. And if God has grace for my salvation, 
and my imperfect outreach, then certainly he has grace for yours too. To be salt of the earth, light of the world, be distinct and engaged. Let's pray. God, what a high calling. And yet your grace is sufficient. In some ways, being salt in life is so simple. It's being like our Lord and Savior, being Jesus Christ and being faithful to him. And yet we know in another sense, it is the most challenging thing to do. And so we turn to you to supply us the strength. We look to Christ who is the light of the world. And as our affections increase, Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful to be shiny and salty. Lord, your word tells us that the harvest is plentiful. Lord, that there are so many who need the good news of Christ in the world of academia, to the tech industry, to foreign lands and the mission field and back into our own homes. Lord, help us to proclaim Christ, that we may be a gospel influence for the sake of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.